Hello and welcome to Hammock Stories, a podcast for people seeking inspiration while on their journey to finding identity, meaning, and community. Every week, your hosts, Tu and Chenny, will be asking an everyday hero to join us in our hammock and share their personal story of how they've arrived at themselves. Slow it down. Nothing to do, abandon the cars, map our way with the stars. Hi there, welcome to Hammock Stories. In this episode, we're joined by a talented artist named Sophie Dow. Sophie was born in Winnipeg and has Metis roots. She's an emerging artist, dancer, choreographer, musician, and wellness practitioner. You can find her in Toronto playing with her band, The Honeycomb Flyers, and also solo as The Honeybee. In this episode, Sophie shares her busking adventures across Turtle Island twice, touring with a hammock. We also learn about her healing journey of being in the midst of a dance degree while suffering three concussions. Hi, Sophie. Hi. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I couldn't possibly be better I'm in a hammock. <laughs> you look very cozy. So cozy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I brought you on here for multiple reasons. Um, <laughs> one of them, which you were about to talk about before the call, was um, about you traveling with a hammock. Yes. Um, hammock is my all-time favorite mode of travel. When I was on tour for five months in 2018, three of the months were spent with nothing but my backpack and a couple of tarps and my hammock and a washboard and a guitar. Um, <laughs> and I basically, every location that I was planning to go to or not planning to go to, I'd find a set of trees. And I had this beautiful little setup called... I called it the honeybee hideouts. My busking, ah. my busking name is uh, and music solo music project name is the honeybee. Um, so my little busking honeybee sign and a couple of tarps that I figured out how to strap over top of my hammock, um, and created this lovely little hut with some battery powered lights and my honeybee sign and. Learned lots of things about hammock hacks and how to live in them in all seasons along the way. <laughs> What's your favorite hammock hack? Um, layers. Oh. You've got to, you have to get a layer under under your back. So now I have this lovely little blow-up mattress, um, like what you bring on a canoe trip. Uh-huh. Um, and then you get your sleeping bag on top of that. And then you get either a wool blanket or a shawl on top of that. And that's warmer than your bed in a heated house will ever wow. be. Wow. Um, the other one is a lot of people argue sleeping diagonally on a hammock so your back doesn't get messed up. But the real secret is a blow-up pillow at your head and a sweater under your knees. Oh. So then you're actually, your spine's in better alignment than it would be on a diagonal. Mm. Oh, we got to have a new blog post on that. Hammock <laughs> yeah. hacks. Yes. Can you come over sometime and hack my hammock? Absolutely. I would love to. 
<laughs> so, so what got you into hammocks and busking and touring around and traveling around? Um, in 2017, I was recovering from a number of concussions, and I am a dancer and a musician. Um, and so I was taking time off dance during this recovery, and I was trying to slowly finish a degree that I had to audit, drop, and defer. And I met a 20th century blues ragtime um, old school guitar player. And we met in a guitar class at university. And one day he's like, you know what? you should get a washboard and we should just go on tour. <laughs> and me being a 21-year-old concussed crazy person at this point said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So I got a $20 washboard off of Kijiji. Um, <laughs> got some thimbles from a store in Winnipeg and... In about three days, we emailed 100 bars across eastern Canada. We had never been, either of us, past Montreal in our lives. And, um, or further east past Montreal, I should say. And we booked about 10 gigs in two days. And wow. we just took off. <laughs> Didn't have some funds saved up, but not much. Our plan is to busk our way across to all the places and wherever we got to early enough we would just busk before the gig and make a bit of extra coin um we had checked everywhere except for from montreal to halifax because it's impossible to get a ride hitchhike in quebec <laughs> um i'm not trying to be discriminatory but quebecers just don't pick people up it's just Aww. not in their culture <laughs> um so we ended up, after getting stranded, in, we had two gigs in Montreal. Um, so after getting stranded in Montreal for three days, the person that we were staying with, um, it's a friend that I did a ride share with the year prior to, um, he helped us rent a car. And we drove a car in 20, it was, we had 24 hours to get this car from Montreal to Halifax, which is a 17-hour drive. <laughs> um, and I'm the only person of the two of us that had a license. So it was 17 hours. I've done this. Yes. Pulled into Halifax around 4.30 in the morning, um, set up a hammock um, by the water um, and slept for a couple hours and then returned the car at the airport and then went back to a park and had another nap (laughs) and played a gig later that night. Wow. Yeah. So that's, I think, where it started mostly. I guess I've always had hammocks at... Um, I go to the Winnipeg Folk Festival. That's my version of Christmas. Um, so I don't necessarily, I don't really put much emphasis on the celebrated holidays throughout the year, like Christmas and Easter and all of that stuff. Um, but the Winnipeg Folk Festival has been my Christmas since Mm -hmm. before I can remember. My parents brought me as a child and in 2009, 2010, I started going with just my friends and my parents come sometimes now, but not as much as they used to. Um, and I everyone else has their tents and I have my hammock. <laughs> so when did you when did you discover your love for music? Um it's always been a part of my life. I've been very, very blessed. Um my parents 
my dad is a music junkie. Neither of them play music, um, but they both appreciate music a lot. So mm-hmm. my dad's basement is ceiling to floor, CDs, cassettes, records. He's a history teacher too, so books everywhere wow. too on everything. Um, and we used to just have mu- nights where we'd just put on an old record or put on a full album and just sit in the basement and listen, or there's always dancing involved. Um, I started playing piano when I was three, um, and I picked up the flute when I was 11 years old, I guess. Um, This is my cousin played the flute, so I wanted to play the flute, and then I realized how much I hated the flute. Uh, (laughs) I stuck it out for three years, but I started playing alto sax when I was 12. Um, in a jazz context, and then started playing a bit of jazz piano in there as well. Um, and then when I got to high school, they needed a baritone saxophone in the band. So I was like, why not? It's the same thing, just a bit bigger. So I played alto and berry and piano, and then picked up a tenor somewhere in there. And then when I was, I think it was when I was 12 or 13, I saw... Um, a music workshop in in the city. I'm from Winnipeg. So this is in the the millennial millennial library in Winnipeg. Um, and one of my friends, um, I guess my friend's friend was playing at it, and he played a song that just moved the heck out of me, and I I couldn't. I was like, I need to play this song, and he was playing the guitar. Wow. So I got a guitar for Christmas. Um, it's still the guitar that I have today, and that I've dipped in both oceans on the same trip twice um, and slowly just sat down with people at the Winnipeg Folk Fest and other smaller festivals like the Brandon Folk Festival and Rainbow Trout um, and just picked up as many skills as I could. Um, but I never actually started playing the guitar seriously until it was probably 19 or 20. Oh. Um, so you and Rosen dance. Yes. Dance is actually, I talk a lot about music, but dance is kind of my main practice, I suppose. Um, So I started training in ballet when I was two and a half, three. Um, So my grandparents brought me to see the Nutcracker Ballet at the Royal Winnipeg. And I saw Evelyn Hart dance the Sugar Plum Fairy role. And since that time, I knew that I had to dance. I can't actually remember it that well now. But... (laughs) Um, so I trained in ballet until I was about seven and then started competing, um, when I was seven, I guess, um, and slowly started adding in other forms. So jazz, lyrical, modern, hip hop, point, um, some acrobatics. I was also in gymnastics at the time. Um, and then when I turned 16 to 17, the competitive world really started to make me sick and just gross. It's very toddlers and tiara-esque view of things. Um, And it's when I realized I wanted to start taking dance into a more professional context. Um, And so I thought about professional ballet for a while, um, which led down a number of health complications when I was 16 through 18. Um, Realized that I wasn't going to be a professional ballerina at 18, so... Took a year off after high school. I told my parents I wanted to go to art school. And they said, oh, I thought you wanted to be a physiotherapist. And uh, you should go to University of Manitoba and study kin. And you should do that right after you go to high school or else you won't go back to school. And I said, I'm going 
going to take a year off and I'm going to save money and I'm going to move to Toronto and I'm going to go to art school. Um, So I ended up doing just that. I took a year off. I saved up $30,000, worked four and a half jobs, trained in dance a little bit, um, or well, kept training, I guess. And woke up in Toronto when I turned (laughs) halfway through my 19th year. um, And I did a just finished a five-year degree in dance uh, performance and choreography, which also started out as a with a certificate in dance medicine slash dance sciences. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wait, what's dance medicine? It's like physiotherapy for dancers, but with more of, I guess, a scientific view. So, like, in the dance program that I took, you study dance kinesiology, um, and you have a couple of other courses, but there's also courses in biomechanics, but looking at it from a dancer's body standpoint, because a dancer's body, as you train it, develops differently than, say, a soccer player's body or a football player's hockey. And a lot of kinesiology and physiotherapy is all based in those realms, in traditional sports realms, rather than a dancer or from a dancer's body perspective. Hmm. Um, When I started at the at the university, though, they actually no longer offered those courses. So my first two years, I did as many as I could, and then it fizzled out slowly. But, but it, I, yeah. I find it really interesting. You went from, like, being in dance to, like, supporting dance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was nice about that, I at first that was the route I wanted to go. And then as I was doing – or as I was in university – um, I was starting to get some performance contracts and choreographic contracts. Um, so I ended up doing, there's a professional company within the university. So I did that for two years too. And so I still, still got to dance sort of for my first, for my last two years, it was like 12 hour dance days, um, until I got injured, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious because I like, I mean, getting injured the way you did (laughs) in your dance degree I mean, how did you, yeah, I, I, tell me more about what happened or, like, what happened after. Yeah, it was um, definitely a game changer in my entire life. Um, so in 2016, I had three concussions within six months of each other. Um, so the first concussion, the first two concussions were not dance-related at all. I, uh, there was in May of 2016, I got hit in the face with a door at work. Um, I thought it was karma because I was partying in Montreal the weekend (laughs) prior to that. Um, and I, um, I remember I got hit in the face and I heard a crack and I saw, I was holding a knife in my hand and I just saw white, everything went white. So I went and sat down in the back for a bit. Um, and then I was the supervisor on duty. So I tried to go back to work. Um, this is at Starbucks. So I was trying to make drinks on bar and talk to people and do as much as I could. Um, and I looked over at my coworkers like, I'm gonna, I gotta go puke. Um, so I went to the bathroom and there was just blood and everything. So I'd broken my nose as well. So that was all coming out of me. So I went to the hospital and had a doctor that was either very busy or, just maybe didn't have the the information um, and said, oh, yeah, just take 10 to 14 days off and go back to your regular life and you'll be fine. Um, being a 21-year-old at the time who's just wrapped up second year university 
Um, and who worked 40 hours a week at Starbucks from Monday to Thursday, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, went to music festivals and bartended backstage every weekend for six weeks straight. Um, I just went back to doing that and didn't do a great job at healing or listening or anything. Um, So when September rolled around, um, I was getting ready to go back to school. Uh, Two of my roommates and I had just moved into a new apartment, and I was sitting in a chair against a wall, and I had a seizure, which is a residual effect, or it can be a residual effect up to eight months after your first concussion. Um, And I'd never had a seizure before. So when I seized into a board, um, my head hit the wall behind me, leading to another concussion. Uh, And I remember standing up and then opening my eyes, and I was on the floor. um, And my roommate's like, okay, we're calling an ambulance. And I said, no, 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 it's fine. I'm fine. Nothing's wrong. And again, tried to just go back to life. Um, mm. and didn't just ignored mm-hmm. everything, just went back to well, trying to get everything done. And this is where the 12-hour dance days were started. Oh, um, and so I was training. I was in great shape. Um, but papers that were normally take me 45 minutes to an hour to write were taking 8 to 10 hours. So I would mm. write half a sentence, and then I'd stand up, and I'd walk to the bathroom, not know why I was in the bathroom, and go to the kitchen look in the fridge, even though I wasn't hungry, and go back, write another three words of a paragraph that was going to be later on, stand up, go to my roommate's room, come back, and so on. And it would just, it would take all this time to write a paper. And even the papers weren't of great quality. Like you look at, like in first and second year university, I had straight A's and A pluses. Um, And then it's starting to be B's and B minuses, and it was just very different. Um, And so I I figured out something was wrong for sure. So I went to the doctor. um, We did a CT scan, and there was, was, I guess, they could tell that there had been two impacts um, rather than just one at this point. Um, And so I said, okay, well, I, I mean, most of the rest that you need to have was supposed to happen right after your concussion, again, with, not much information. Um, so I just, again, went back to my life being 21 and young and wanting to <laughs> keep going, keep pushing. And I was in dance class in November of 2016 and upside down in a handstand and the person in front of me wasn't necessarily doing the choreography. This was three hours into a long dance day and a week before a show that I was really excited to perform a solo at. Um, and his foot came in contact with my head and I caught myself. I went down, um, and I remember catching myself. So there was no blow impact of my head on the floor. But from what we gather, what happened was my brain skidded and smashed the part of my skull from the part that I concussed in May. Um, and that, I went into blackout mode. I call it, or like the six weeks, six weeks of blackout. Um, six weeks of blackout. Yeah. So the way. How does that work? Um, I don't have much memory of it. There's a few things that my roommates documented and a few flashes that I, um, that I have. So I remember going to my locker. I remember recording that it was 1130 in the morning. Um, and my dance teacher telling me I could leave. Um, and then I remember looking at my clock again. I had just gotten home and it was 1230. Um, it's a, it was a 20 minute walk. So I don't know how. I got home. 
that day. Um, I remember opening my eyes again and being on my mattress like I'd fallen. Um, and then I remember going to the bathroom and throwing up um, and then telling my roommate that I was going to Uber to the hospital, which I did. Um, I remember a moment in the hospital where the doctor gave me a list of five words and I was supposed to tell it back to him and I remember not being able to and just bursting into tears. Um, and then the next thing I remember is being back in my room and my roommates had helped me put up, we had thick blankets on all of our windows. Um, we had a, basically this list that the doctor had given us of stuff that I had to do. So I wasn't allowed to have any light, any sound, any any screens, any anything really. Um, wow. So I had these visor, these, uh, like a baseball cap visor and these big sunglasses that I'd wear if I had to go to appointments. Um, and basically the six weeks of blackout were all in six hour blocks. So the, it'd be sleep for four hours and then my roommate would wake me up um, and I'd have to be awake for two hours because that was before the research came out that now you're not supposed to wake up somebody that's concussed, but we were under the impression that you had to. So that's all the research um, that there was. Um, and so every every time it would progress to like the first times I'd just have a bucket beside my bed, I'd wake up, puke, pass back out, or just lie there. And they used to call it vegetate. So basically make your brain go into vegetable states, which... In my mind, or well, I can't fully remember, but to me, I remember separating. There's like there's meditation and there's vegetation, mm. and it was it was like a step. It was a step less fun than meditation. <laughs> um, but I started calling it flower brains because I didn't like the idea of being a vegetable. Uh, um, that uh, was upsetting to me at the time. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, My goodness. Yeah. Flower does sound better. Yeah. Um, so that was six weeks of that. And slowly I was able to start walking to the kitchen and actually getting to the bathroom, um, without having to crawl or without having to just roll across the floor. Um, and then I slowly started integrating various kinds of therapies to try to start healing all of this. So I had a neurologist who I saw weekly, um, a sports medicine physician, um, so I was very adamant on, um, making this a dance specific healing process. Cause if mm. that's also something that I was studying, I wanted to figure out how I could use this process to help other dancers that had concussions. The first, the day after I got my first concussion, I turned around to every dancer that I knew and I said, I'm so sorry. I had no idea what she went through. It's a huge, it's a huge psychological tool, <laughs> well, literally yeah. and physically. It's a huge psychological tool. Um, so we often look at um, all the physical, physiological side effects that happen when you have a concussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a massive um, psychological and emotional stance, stance you go through. Um, like there's post-concussion syndrome. Um, so I had a cognitive and... Um, cognitive therapist to help deal with that and a psychotherapist. Um, and then I had a f- sports physiotherapist, a dance physiotherapist. Um, I did DFT, which is dynamic functional retraining. Um, and then I tried some other things such as Thai massage and acupuncture. And I went floating, um, 
I tried to go once every second week when I started having, I had some spinal complications okay. um, about halfway through that. So my C1 through my T6 would go into lock position. And when they would go, um, or sorry, it started with my brain. Um, so my brain would spasm in the part that's in, or spasm in the part that's in charge of muscle control mm-hmm. and send a spasm down the right side of my neck, oh my um, and that would um, lock my T C one through T six. And when that goes into lock position, you go into pseudo paralysis. So I would be lying on the floor and say, "Okay, brain, tell your shoulder to tell your elbow, tell your wrist to tell your pinky to wiggle," and it wouldn't because it didn't think there were synapses happening. Um, Oh it was explained to me that's how, that's why it wasn't happening. Um, wow. So I do floating to help with that and all sorts of different things. Um, did, did you navigate all this yourself? I did. That's the crazy, that's what still baffles me today. Um, because for somebody who's had that kind of short-term memory loss and long-term memory loss um, and damage, um I I couldn't read and write. I couldn't really do much of anything. Um, somehow to be a point person for all of that, I just kind of kept taking papers from everywhere I went and would lay them out and somehow knew to go to each of those papers and be like, okay, this is these are the people I have to see today. These are the people I have to see tomorrow. Wow. Um, which in itself was sort of a concussion exercise wow. um, on retraining the brain. Yeah, because, I mean, you as- assembled a team of 10 or more yeah. healers and yes. practitioners. Some of them were based out of the same place, which was helpful. Um, and some of them were very helpful in terms of integrative um, healing. So, for example, my dance physiotherapist was based in the basement of the dance building at my university. So after a while, I had permission. So I had to audit, drop, and defer my entire degree, yeah. which my psychotherapist helped me with because she was based at the university, too. Um the dance therapist would bring me up to the ballet class that I was supposed to be in, and we'd do five minutes at the ballet bar, and then she, her and I would go back downstairs, and we'd just slowly increase that up to the point that I could do a full ballet bar. Um, and a lot of, I think I pushed for a lot of that, but a lot of the healing was all based like that. So what have you learned? <laughs> <laughs> How long ago did this happen again? When you had the blackout? That would have been November, December of 2016. Wow. So not that long ago. Um, I've only just recently, I'd say about a year, mm, about a half a year ago, I started being completely symptom-free. But some of the symptoms are back now, recently. So Mm. Um, that's... I used to say it was my PhD in patience. Uh, yeah. I audited and dropped my diff, my diff, uh, my other degree because I was starting my PhD in patience without a <laughs> without a bachelor's. Um, but Doctor I'd say, yeah, um, stopping, taking proper time to heal. Um, if I, there's many things. I mean, yeah, there's many things I would go back and change the way I did when I was healing, and I. Always, or I used to think like I would be so much more advanced than I am now if I had taken that proper time or if I hadn't gone to all these festivals, if I hadn't done this or that. But it also taught me that there is no going back. Mm-hmm. So the first, after the blackout phase, there's the three months of the therapy that I did um, 
was I have to get back to that shape that I was in right before my concussion. I have to get back to that solo. I have to get back to all these things. Um, and it was this huge realization and emotional time that there there was no going back. There's only moving forward um, mm-hmm. without looking into the future. Yeah. Um, so there's some days you, you don't, you literally you don't know, know if you're going to be able to go outside or yeah. you don't know if you're going to be able to ha- handle light or whatever is going on um, and being okay with that, um, which is a whole practice <laughs> in itself. Yeah. Is there something that you would point to that, that, that has helped you or might help other people that, are, that have found their life just falling apart the same way? Um. Taking a step back and taking a deep breath um, and knowing that everything happens for a reason. Um, There are many reasons I believe the concussions happened. I believe they've saved my life in many different ways, many different facets. Um, Yeah. Can you give us an example? My party weekend in Montreal, I'm sure I would have continued partying quite the same way. Um, Definitely. Um, It opened many doors, too, in terms of um, one of the therapies I did that was in combination with the dance physio was I started playing music in dance classes. All of our dance classes had live musicians. Um, So I would go up and sit with the musicians for an hour when I actually could handle sound again with headphones or with, oh. with earplugs. Um, and to be able to watch a body move in space, to play the instrument that you're playing to the rhythm, but also create a rhythm for them, um, started rehabilitating my brain in different, in different ways entirely. Um, and so now that's opened a door to, in my own choreography and dance practice now, I've started composing almost all my own music. Um, or engaging other artists who have either had injuries or who like to work in the same way um, to work on the projects as well. So we're all supporting each other and supporting each other both in artistic fields but also in our um, rehabilitation and in our growth. So can you tell us a little bit more about what this new Ford looks like now? Um, Hmm. It's... I guess it de- um, it depends on the 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 world or the realm. I guess like in my dance world, in engaging various artists and helping their rehab. Um, in the music world, I take a lot of risks. Not that I wasn't really doing. Yeah, I was. I wasn't really doing much risky business or any crazy music stuff before. I was mostly focused on dance. But when I had my time off and working through my rehab and finishing up with my rehab time, um, it was kind of just a, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Let's just live in the moment. Let's, let's go for it. Um, there's no, there's no real, I mean, there's consideration of safety, but otherwise there's a lot less hesitation. Mm. Um, and just kind of, letting things happen as they go and riding, riding that wave. Um, it's cool because I met you yeah. making a drum. Yeah. <laughs> a 
new instrument. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was fortunate enough to actually already have a drum when we did that that workshop, um, but to, to actually physically make your own drum. My drum has taken me so far, yeah. but to have a drum that you physically made. And birthed. And birthed. <laughs> yes, exactly. We birthed our drums together. Yes, we did. It was... <laughs> magical it's yeah it's a whole different yeah. world <laughs> and it, in that world like with the drum circle is mm-hmm. like another support group for a new oh entirely new group of people entirely for me that drum circle and also making the drum is another connection into um indigeneity and indigenous roots yeah. um and you have those roots, right? Yes, I do. Um, so I was adopted, um, and my birth, my adoptive parents were always very big on keeping the connection with my birth mother, um, and also um, they were very big on me getting my status card when I was really young. Um, so my birth mother is part Métis, and so I got my Métis status card when I was, say, 12 or 13 or so. Um, and in Winnipeg, that's where I was raised anyways, that's something that you hid. Um, for what we, I was fairly white, raised in a fairly whitewashed community. Um, it's a small sleepy part of Winnipeg, like feels like you're in the sixties growing up. Um, but for us, when we saw indigenous peoples, it was when we were downtown for dance competitions and it was a large percentage of the homeless community and um, lots of drugs, lots of alcohol in a world that we were very shaded or hidden from at that time. Um, and so I never, ever wanted to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to Toronto, I saw whole new world. all of these Indigenous artists making things and dancers and powwows. And I knew there were powwows happening in Manitoba, but I didn't know how to access them. Um, and didn't necessarily have the interest to access them. Um, There are little bits here and there that would stand out from Indigenous culture. Um, Like I remember once in elementary school, we did a dream dream catcher making workshop. Um, Or in middle school, we had to make like a plasticine model of what Canada looked like before colonialism. Mm. Um, And I always knew, knew there was a difference somewhere. Um, and for example, my parents, I remember, um, they're both teachers. They used to take time before I was born. Um, they would go up to a reserve and they would teach on a reserve for a year, um, or two years here and there. And so I knew they had connections and I knew there was a difference between colonialism and indigeneity, but I didn't know what it was and I didn't know how to access it without understanding really, I guess. Um, and so when I moved to Toronto, another huge support was my parents said, okay, you need to apply for Inspire, which is Indigenous funding. I was like, why am I applying for Indigenous funding if I'm not connected to the community at all? And they're like, well, then connect yourself to the community. Mm. Um, so I took a number of paths here and there. Um, some failed, some were more successful than others. Um, and slowly, I guess that's another part of my moving forward is my practices now are a lot focused in rather than there's a lot of conversation around decolonizing the body, um, particularly in dance um, and the art and music and arts. Um, but rather than 
ripping out all these Western forms that have ingrained into me, starting to listen to my blood and where I'm from and learning how to have conversations while using the, all these ingrained forms as a vehicle. Um, so I'm starting to learn Indigenous, I'm starting to learn powwow steps. I'm starting to work with other Indigenous dance artists and music artists um, and also just Indigenous people in general, um, not even from the arts communities, um, and learning how to integrate all of that and learn through the voice of dance, I guess, mostly, and music. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're almost just at time. Yeah. I'm curious, if you were to give your younger self some <laughs> fresh advice, <laughs> what advice would you lay on? Um, step back and listen and be patient. You're going to learn a lot about patience. And you will continue. It's a lifelong process. Um, but just just wait. Everything everything happens at a specific time for a specific reason. Um, and and you'll get there. And you'll continue getting there. And there is not a f- definitive point because it's just always going to keep expanding. Mm, I love um, that. Yeah. And there'll be the hammocks part of your life. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be lots of hammocks. Lots and lots of hammocks and lots of mountains. (laughs) vehicles from there to there to there. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. For sharing your stories with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hammock Stories. And thank you, Sophie, for sharing your story of rebirth and perseverance. See you next time as we're joined by Tiana Egdom, a connector and guide who builds bridges for people to discover what they truly love. Three things,